0: Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 11, and looking at verses 2 through 11. So once again, I invite you to turn there and follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired Word. When John, meaning John the Baptist, heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And herein ends the reading of God's Word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to Him and to Him alone. Amen. The last couple of Sundays, we have been focusing on our need to be ready for the Lord's return. Two weeks ago, we spoke about not missing the boat, about getting ready for Christ's second coming and staying ready by means of the regular means of grace, the ordinary means of grace that God has provided for the church. And last week, we spoke about making kingdom preparations through genuine repentance and why that is key to experiencing the assurance that God grants to all those who turn to Christ in faith. And this morning, we want to think about the issue of pride for a little while and how pride stands in the way of one's complete surrender to the lordship of Christ. John the Baptist was at the center of our text last Sunday, and he is tangentially here this morning. John, by this point in Matthew's gospel, is in prison because of his prophetic denouncements concerning the behavior of King Herod. Herod had taken a liking to his brother's wife, and so he had his brother killed and then took his wife as his own. And John publicly denounced this evil, called Herod to repentance, and he was thrown into prison for his trouble. Now, as you might imagine, prison gives you a great deal of time to think. And John has been doing a lot of thinking, wondering when the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, is going to initiate his mission. From what John has been hearing, Jesus is engaged in a ministry that John did not anticipate. As John envisioned the Messiah's mission, We don't know how he saw that taking shape or what he thought that would entail, but if he was anything like his neighbors, John may have assumed that when the Messiah finally came, there would be a dramatic turn in the course of events. He would have been familiar with Isaiah 65. It speaks about the new heavens and the new earth where the wolf and the lamb shall graze together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, where Jerusalem shall be a joy and our people to be a gladness. He would have known Isaiah chapter 11 concerning the branch that shall come forth from the stump of Jesse, upon whom the Spirit of the Lord shall rest, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The outcome shall be that peace will reign throughout the animal kingdom, as well as upon the holy mountain. And the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So when John was not hearing reports of such developments, he began to wonder if he had misunderstood the role that Jesus was to play. And he sought some assurance that either his first thought that Jesus was Messiah was correct or else, He needed to adjust his expectations and see Jesus as another forerunner to the Messiah, someone like John himself. And so John sends messengers to Jesus to ask a question of him. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In other words, are you the Messiah, or is the Messiah still off in the future somewhere? And when Jesus answers, he indicates that these disciples of John have been witnesses to the miraculous signs that Jesus has been providing. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. They've been listening to Jesus preaching. They have been witnessing his miracles. They can bear personal testimony to the things that Jesus has been doing. And these things... Are a fulfillment of Isaiah 35, which we read just a moment ago. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. But there are even more signs than these. Jesus is cleansing lepers, raising the dead to life. He is gladdening the heart of the poor, for they are hearing the good news of God. And there are spiritual eyes that are being opened. And there are spiritual ears that are being unstopped. And there are spiritually dead people being raised to new life. Granted that these are more difficult to perceive, but they are visible to those who have been redeemed. But then Jesus says to these messengers, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now we need to recognize that these friends of John the Baptist have evidently approached Jesus while he has been engaged with the crowds of people because in verse 7 it says that as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And we are left with the impression that the interchange between Jesus and this little entourage has occurred within earshot of many others. And if this be true, then this interruption provides Jesus with an opportunity to underscore the significance of John's purpose and his ministry. And so Jesus asks a rhetorical question of the crowd gathered. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Now Jesus knows that all of Jerusalem and Judea and the region around the Jordan ventured out into the wilderness because word traveled fast concerning John. And eventually, people from all over went out to see for themselves the strange man dressed in camel's hair and a leather belt, snacking on locusts and wild honey. John was just too great of a curiosity to ignore. And people from all over went out to see him For themselves. So Jesus wants them to reconsider what they themselves observed. What did you see? Did you come away thinking that John was some wishy washy philosopher who would not take a stand on anything of significance, who was accustomed to speaking a lot of words without ever really saying anything? Was he like a a reed blowing back and forth in the wind? Of course not. Well, then did you see a a political toady out there? Someone who kowtows to the whims and wishes of a king. Someone who has gotten rich by bowing down to the guy in political power. A sycophant who who has sacrificed all self-respect just so he can have the nicer things in life like soft clothing. Is that what John was? Of course not. So what did you see? A prophet? Yes. That's what you saw. And that's what you concluded once you heard him. And you were right. In fact, John was more than a prophet. He was himself the fulfillment of the prophecy of Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is what Jesus quotes to the crowd. But he also could have quoted from Isaiah 40. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. The Word of God foretold John's coming, and when he appeared, prophecy itself was fulfilled. But John was also a prophet in his own right. In fact, Jesus says that he was the greatest prophet. Now, why would he say that? Why is he greater than Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or any of the others? The answer to that is somewhat speculative. One would have to say that because he lived to see his own prophecy fulfilled, he was greater. In chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is answering a question of the disciples' who want to know why he teaches in parables. And Jesus tells them that they are truly blessed, for God has granted them eyes to see and ears to hear the truth. In other words, they have been granted the privilege of seeing and hearing the fulfillment of all that has been prophesied until now. And then Jesus says, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. So in one sense, John is the greatest of the prophets by virtue of his living long enough to see the one of whom he prophesied. When he said, he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he was still prophesying those words when the one of whom he spoke approached him and asked for John to baptize him in the River Jordan. But then John had the great privilege of playing a role in the inauguration of the ministry of Jesus. He baptized Jesus in the river, submerging him in the waters that had been used to cleanse the people of their sins, pointing forward to the day on Calvary's tree, when as our substitute Jesus would carry all those sins upon his soul. Shoulders and be submerged in the full wrath of God, fulfilling John's prophetic word Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then John was a witness to the descent of the Spirit of the Lord, enthusing Christ's human nature with an abundance of spiritual power, equipping him for what lay ahead trial and temptation and conspiracy and political intrigue all balanced by the father's word of affirmation this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased john's prophetic ministry was not simply a ministry of word but it was also a ministry of sacrament as he urged people to be baptized in preparation for the coming messiah john not only proclaimed the christ who was to come But he readied the people for Christ's arrival by urging them to repent from their sin and turn to the Lord. All of these things, perhaps, are what Jesus is referring to. His assessment that John was the greatest prophet requires no justification. It's true because the Son of God says it's true, but we can certainly understand why it is true based upon these things and many others. And yet Jesus then says a curious thing when he goes on to say, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now what does he mean by that? Well, as we just said, part of John's greatness came from the fact that John had the great privilege of meeting the one of whom he prophesied. John foretold that the Messiah was coming, that he was near at hand, and then he was there And John had the opportunity to say, see, here's the one of whom I spoke. But there were aspects of the Messiah's ministry that John was unable to witness because John was soon beheaded before Jesus' ministry reached its climactic moment on Calvary's hill and then in a garden tomb three days later. John was still in the dark concerning Christ's ascension and being seated at the right hand of the Father. And then the descent of the Holy Spirit once more at Pentecost, not to fill and equip the Messiah with great spiritual power and giftedness, but rather the collective body of Christ, the church. So part of what Jesus is saying here is that as great as John was, as a prophet of the Lord, the least in the kingdom of heaven has a greater understanding of what the Messiah has come to accomplish than John did as the greatest prophet among all the prophets. Now, to understand this better, we need to return to an earlier statement that Jesus makes to these disciples of John. He ends his answer to them by saying, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And the word that Jesus uses there. Is scandalizo from which we derive our word scandalize and the roots of this word are connected to a stumbling block or a, or a trap one has only to think of a person who has become entangled in a a messy affair or has been arrested for drug possession or some other very public sin to gain a sense of what is behind this word for those kinds of Scandalous events all involve a person stumbling or becoming entrapped in a way that is most humiliating. And Jesus is saying that there are people who stumbled over him. They were scandalized by the things that Jesus was saying. They were scandalized by the things that he was doing. They found his behavior to be abhorrent. And the best example of this is found in John chapter 6, which we have referred to many times over the years. But there we find the crowds leaving Jesus, for they found it difficult to understand his teaching as he referred to their need to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. He was speaking metaphorically, but they had no spiritual understanding of what he was saying. And those who heard his teaching that day declared, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And Jesus responded to them by saying, do you take offense at this? Scandalizo, same word. And the Bible says that many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. But that wasn't the only time. So many were scandalized by Jesus' actions and sayings. He would receive sinners and eat with them, and people grumbled. He cleansed the temple by overturning the money-changing tables and chasing out the animals, and people demanded to know by what authority he did these things. He refused to follow the traditions of the elders and scribes and Pharisees. They all demanded an explanation. But what lies at the foundation of their being offended? What causes them to be scandalized by these things? I would suggest to you that at the root of it all is pride. Is it not due to an internal sense of moral superiority on their part? We see it all the time in the world of social media, do we not? Someone posts an article they have read accompanied with a brief statement and someone else is immediately offended by it and they decide to school this person with a rebuttal they believe is the definitive answer to all things. But their rebuttal has no sense of humility that accompanies it. The reply does not exhibit a desire to further mutual understanding between the parties but rather it is sharp and intended to eviscerate the first person and humiliate them before the world while elevating their own uh, sense of a higher position. And those who were scandalized by Jesus' teachings and actions were like that, people who believed that they occupied the moral high ground, that they were superior to him, and their pride eventually led them to conspiracy to commit murder And all the while they were engaged in that, it never occurred to them that they were breaking the Lord's commandment. Thou shalt not kill. When Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me, he is pointing out that it is our pride which must be set aside if we are to partake of the salvation he offers. To come to Christ, there must be contrition. David says in Psalm 51, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. To come to Christ, one needs to recognize the depth of our fallenness, for if we do not, we will not recognize our need for Him. The Apostle Paul, in writing to his young protege, Timothy, says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. When he wrote to the Corinthians, he said, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. You see, there is no place for pride when approaching Christ, seeking the salvation that he freely offers. There's no place for pride when following Christ as a disciple, and yet how often do we witness that? There are those today who claim to be Christ's disciples and yet are scandalized, offended by what Christ teaches on a host of subjects. But rather than recognize him as the word who was in the beginning who was with God who was God who made all that was made and without him was not anything made that was made and humbly then received the clear words of Christ they proudly offer heretical ideas intended to exalt themselves in the eyes of the world and they look to influence others and to gain a following of their own Jesus says blessed is the one who is not offended by me. To not be offended, one needs to come to the point of realizing that Jesus is exactly who He says He is, the great I Am. To not be offended, one needs to realize that we all are sinners who deserve no respect, no consideration, no accolades or praise, that what we deserve is eternal separation from God. To not be offended, one needs to be willing to bow the knee before Him whom God the Father has given a name that is above all other names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. So where are we in this? Do we take offense At Jesus' words, at his actions, are we reluctant to stand for his name? If so, then there is pride to be sure at work in us, and it needs to be set aside. In true humility, then, let us bow before the one who has suffered and died in our place. Let us consider ourselves to be the least in the kingdom and let us gratefully receive all that Christ Jesus offers to us in himself. If you will, let us pray for a moment this morning.